Well, thank you very much, worship band. Well, good morning, Blue Water. Very happy to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name's Austin, if you don't know me. I am, thank you, Andy. I am in charge of, uh, I, I'm on staff here serving in the high school ministry. So I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, and you're in high school, uh, or if you're not in high school, I would love to meet you um, after the service. Um, I went to Great Lakes Secondary School in high school, and if you don't know where or what that is, um, well, shout out, first of all, there's a handful of people here who either went to or are in Great Lakes. Um, if you walk about 50 steps that way, um, you will maybe be in the football field. It's right there, right across the street. Um, if you know anything about the high schools in town, maybe you're around here, or maybe you're from around here, maybe you're not, Northern and St. Pat's have some really good sports programs. Uh, typically, they, uh, they have really good basketball team, football team. Um, I'm thinking specifically right now of the Northern basketball team. If you're not on their travel, some of you know this, if you're not on their travel team when you're seven years old, every year up until you are in the high school age, there's a good chance you will have no chance of making the team, okay? Um, and Great Lakes, on the other hand, um, they have a really good arts program. Okay, so not so much um, as well-renowned in the sports area, and that's totally okay. I was totally fine with that. You want to know why? Well, first of all, because I do enjoy the arts. I, I like music, but also because it was possible for me to make the basketball team, okay? Um, so I played all throughout uh, my years in high school, but I was never a shoe-in, okay? I was never for sure going to make the team, so I was always feeling that pressure um, whenever uh, it was the day before the coach was gonna nail up that schedule, the team list, sorry, on the bulletin board. I was always like, oh, am I gonna make it, am I not? Um, I was working my butt off to find a spot. But that meant that I didn't have a starting position. I did make the team, but I didn't have a starting position. I, I, I came off the bench or how we used to say it, I rode the pine, okay? I, was, I, I came off the bench, someone had to warm up that seat for the starters, right? So, I never hated this. I felt privileged to be a part of the team, and um, in our division, we never really played against Northern and St. Pat's, those teams, we played against the smaller schools. We typically did pretty well. Um, and in my second year, um, I was noticing that some people here that have actually played under this coach as well, so I, I'm just going to put that out there. I played under Coach K, um, and he was a really good coach. Everyone said he was one of the best, okay? Um, he was really, really tough, though, like a really tough coach. So um, when I was going um, and, and playing, it didn't take me long to realize that if you weren't one of his favorites, all it took was one mistake and you were benched as fast as physically possible, okay? <laughs> as soon as the play ended, the, uh, uh, there was a substitute for you if you made a mistake. I remember times when I would be playing, and I would make a, 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 one of my handful of baskets that I made a year, and I'd feel so good about myself, run back on defense. Um, the next play, or the play after that, I would just make a really dumb decision. I would throw the ball away, or take a bad shot, or whatever it was. And the pain that I felt in my heart when I looked over to the sideline at my coach, and I always looked over the sideline at my coach because I always wanted his approval, whether it was good or bad. The pain I would feel in my heart when I looked over to the sideline at my coach and his head is down, he's shaking across his arms, and then he's looking over, scanning the bench to see who he was going to pick to replace me, okay? I, I promise there's no bitterness, it's just, oh, I get right up by this stuff. <laughs> Do you think this would improve my game as a basketball player? Well, 
Some, I, I'm sure there are people that this uh, way of coaching would, would make them a better player. That's not me, okay? I, I, it did not improve my game as a basketball player. I was constantly playing in fear, knowing that as soon as I made a mistake, I was benched, taken out, until maybe the coach decided to give me some more playing time. Maybe he would decide that. You know, I, I will admit I spent a, a, a lot of minutes, uh, game time minutes, on the bench because of a mistake that I made. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, we're going to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1, so 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, but first, I'm going to give a little preface to the story. Um, you may or may not have heard this before. I think it, it should be known by everyone because of how awesome it is. Um, it's the story of King David and Mephibosheth. Okay, that's a, that's a mouthful. Can we all say Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth? It's a fun one. I spent a long time practicing it, trying not to mess it up um, this morning, but I probably will anyway, so um, please forgive me for that. This passage took a great deal of consideration to choose, but once I did and um, I started, you know, it, studying it and, and diving deeper into the text here. I fell in love with this story. It is such, such a good story. So much so, um, I was talking uh, with my wife, Rachel, about it, and I was just like, man, I just love this story so much. Um, just this Mephibosheth character I relate to so much. Um, it just paints such a, an awesome picture. And um, so much so, I was like, you know what, Rachel? If we ever have a boy, you know, maybe we could, and she kind of stopped me right there, and, and that was kind of it, it for that. I thought Phoebe would be a really cool nickname for short. She wasn't on board with that, and that's totally okay. Um, anyway, we, we kind of have a catchphrase here at Blue Water, and that is, you may have heard it before, it's all about Jesus. It's kind of the foundation of, of Blue Water Church. And when we say that, we do really mean everything, every possible thing. It's all about Jesus. I want to focus in here a little bit on the fact that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. The Old Testament, if you don't know, is the entirety of the Bible before Jesus comes into the picture. So it's actually the majority of the Bible. Um, if you've done your own study throughout the Old Testament, you may have realized or noticed that there's a significant amount of times when the gospel is pictured through a narrative story in the Old Testament. It happens multiple times, many times. It proves to us that the entirety of the Bible in the Old Testament is about Jesus. I want to give you guys uh, some few examples if you don't know what I mean. Genesis 22, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. But in the last minute, God provides a lamb to be sacrificed in place of Isaac. And this pointed to Christ and his sacrifice for us as the providing lamb. Exodus 12, which is the Passover, the Israelites were saved from the wrath of God by the blood of lambs that were smeared on their, door, on their doorposts. And when that happened, the angel of death would pass over the Israelites. That's why they call it Passover. Um, and this points to um, the blood of Jesus, the perfect lamb who makes death pass over us right now. Um, if you ever read the book of Hosea, that entire book, it's a, it's a must read. Um, the prophet Hosea had a wife and she was utterly, completely, and totally unfaithful to him. Um, and at one point, Hosea went into the dirtiest, gross depths of the earth to purchase his wife back from the sex slavery that she, sh he, she 
sold herself into. He had to buy his own wife back. And that points to Jesus, who is the better Hosea, who shows grace to his unfaithful bride, who is us, the church, coming to earth to, pr- to purchase life for us. And I could go on. There are so many of these stories. You can see it in, I don't want to say almost all of the Old Testament, but there's a lot of the Old Testament stories that you can see this picture. This story we're about to go through right now of David and Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is not an exception to this list, okay? I think it is, if not the most, it is one of the most profound and clear-cut and authentic pictures of the gospel and in the Old Testament. So we're going to start here. Um, The whole story is only 13 verses, so we're going to start with the first six. Okay, 2 Samuel 9 verse 1. David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. Okay, there's a few things we need to talk about here. Um, in that period of history, the traditional thing that would happen in the monarchy, so with the, with the kings and, and all that stuff, is when a new king would replace an old king, so the old king would die and the new king would come in his place, that new king would then track down and murder any of that old king's family to eliminate any potential threat for the throne, okay? That is a traditional thing that would happen. Now, David was not like other kings. He was a good king, as we know he's a man after God's own heart. And some years after he had assumed kingship from Saul after he died, David was looking for any of Saul's descendants to actually show kindness to them. And David happened to have a servant named Ziba, who we heard about a little bit, um, who used to be a servant of Saul, which is crazy because Normally the king would kill off all the servants of the previous king as well, but this guy is kicking around. So he asked Ziba if there's anyone left, and Ziba knew of one of Saul's grandsons named Mephibosheth. And you catch what Ziba said there? Um, All in the same breath, before even saying his name, he said, there's still son of Jonathan, he's crippled in his feet. Ziba was insinuating to David that Mephibosheth wasn't really cut out to be around the king. He's not really... You know, he's not really the, the royal type, okay? He's, he's crippled in his feet. He's not really, he's kind of worthless. But David rejected that and immediately sent out to find him as fast as he could to bring him in. So who is Mephibosheth and why is he crippled? It's kind of cool because the Bible a couple of chapters before in 2 Samuel 4 kind of tells us a little bit about Mephibosheth. Um, we see that Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 4, you can read it for yourself if you want to, um, Mephibosheth is five years old when his father and grandfather, Jonathan and King Saul, were killed in battle. So there was a maid that was taking care of five-year-old Mephibosheth at this time. And so when she heard the news that Mephibosheth's dad and grandpa 
were killed in battle. She knew what that meant. That meant that whoever was going to assume kingship next was going to track down Mephibosheth and kill him. So she knew, she did what she, she, she knew to do and she pick up, picked up Mephibosheth and she bolted. She, she, she ran uh, as fast as she could, as far away from Jerusalem as she possibly could to make sure that Mephibosheth would be safe. But it's interesting because 2 Samuel 4 says that in her haste, he fell and became lame. She dropped him while she's trying to run for their lives. She dropped him and he became crippled for life. Names had meaning back in the day. And the name Mephibosheth actually means shameful one. So maybe Rachel's off the hook. We probably shouldn't name any, any kids that. But we can assume that he inherited that name after he became lame. So he, he took on this name of shame, literally, because of the fact that he had basically no worth because he couldn't do anything. He couldn't walk, he couldn't work because of his legs. So Mephibosheth's lameness was his shame. He spent his entire life carrying around this name because of his legs. Maybe you're here today and you're carrying shame. Maybe it's from something that you've done, or maybe it's something that's been done to you. But we'll see in a minute here the story of Mephibosheth that God actually uses his lameness to save him. We can be confident that God has purposes and plans for your life and that there's freedom from the shame that you may be living under. So when Mephibosheth hears that he is called, he's being called into the presence of the king, you know what he's thinking? He's thinking that I'm going to my execution, right? I could only stay under the radar for so long, now I'm going to my death. That's what Mephibosheth is thinking. And I assume at this point, his life, he's definitely poor. He definitely doesn't have much going for him. He might be thinking, okay, it is what it is. But he rises in the presence of David and falls on his face and pays homage, acknowledging himself as David's servant. And what does David say immediately? He shouts out his name. He says, Mephibosheth. And welcomes him in. Let's continue reading verse 7. David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Not only does David reject the tradition of killing off the lineage of his predecessor, he goes out of his way to show abundant kindness to Mephibosheth, calling him by name, welcoming him to eat at the king's table and restoring to him the land of his ancestors. Treating him like a son of his own. This is all, David said, because of Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. Because David and Jonathan had a, had a covenant to show favor to each other's family. So Mephibosheth is there Right, you can picture it, like he's probably not standing. Well, he's definitely not standing. And he's before the king, knowing that he has nothing. He can provide nothing. 
he, you, can, you can say he has less than nothing because he has no ability to, to do anything. Yet, David welcomes him in and shows him kindness because of his father Jonathan's actions. Verse eight, this is Mephibosheth. He paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And when I tell you that I feel like a dead dog sometimes before my king. Next verse, nine. The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth and your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. If you are here this morning and you're wondering what in the world is this Christianity thing about, like what is, the, what is it all about, this is it. This is God's grace. Every single one of us is Mephibosheth. Okay? I am Mephibosheth. We are Mephibosheth. We are broken. We are dirty. We're crippled by our sin, unable to bring anything of worth. In fact, we bring less than nothing of worth to the table with God. Yet, he invites us to eat with him because of Christ's work on the cross. And because of Jesus, because of that work, we are presented now as clean, as proper and fixed. It's only because of Jesus. Such a, such a beautiful picture here. There's this uh, different analogy um, that I have heard before and kind of interacted a little bit with. And it goes a little bit like this. So there is a man, there's a man who's tr- uh, in the middle of a lake. So that's us, the sinner, in the middle of a lake. And we're struggling to keep afloat. We're doing everything that we can to survive. And then God who's standing on the opposite side of the shore, throws us a life preserver, Jesus, and pulls us into safety, okay? When I heard that, I I, I found that there was something glaringly wrong with that picture. Maybe a couple things, but one thing in particular. And that's that it has the, the sinner, the man, doing something, treading water, staying afloat, just barely, but staying afloat. And I think that's wrong. I think the Bible shows us pretty clearly that we were dead, that we did bring nothing like Mephibosheth. If you don't believe me, check out these verses. We'll show them on the screen real quick, pretty quick. Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. A couple verses later, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Colossians 2, 13, 
and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We were dead. We were at the bottom of that lake, okay? We were at the bottom of that lake and Jesus went down in the depths and pulled us back to shore and breathed life into us. Okay, that is the gospel. If you're here today and you're hearing this maybe for the first time, or maybe you haven't heard it in a long time and need a reminder, there is rescue from sin for you. And the answer is Jesus. And it's always been Jesus. It always will be Jesus. There is rescue from sin and shame. If you want to step out and make that decision today for the first time, maybe you need to make it again, we would love to talk to you about that. It is the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life. I promise you that. If you want to find Pastor Tim or myself or one of us on staff, we would love to pray with you or talk with you or what that looks like more. Back to basketball. When I played on this team at Great Lakes, I played in fear, knowing that my next decision could, could make, make sure that I'm not getting any more playing time, which encouraged me to be paranoid anytime I stepped on the court. You can ask anyone who watched me play and my team play. You can ask my dad, you can ask Scott who came to a few games, and you, you could just tell that I was just terrified anytime I was playing, because I, I knew that something I was going to do was going to displease the coach and I was going to be benched, okay? And sometimes I think we as Christians can live day to day like the way that I played basketball under this coach. We can choose to live in fear and under shame when, as Christians, God has already freed us from those things because of Christ's sacrifice, so does that mean that we won't feel guilty? No, of course, we will feel guilty when we sin. Because the Holy Spirit nudging us in the direction of not sin. That's different from shame, though. On one hand, guilt says, I have done something bad. I have messed up. I have made a mistake. I have failed. This can be, like I said, the prompting of a Holy Spirit. While shame, on the other hand, focuses on the self, first of all, and it says, I am bad, I am a mistake, I am a failure. And those are lies directly from the enemy. Guilt recognizes that changes need to be made in order to honor the Lord in a better way, while shame wants us to be defined, wants us to think that we are defined by our sins and our failures. And it makes us, like I said, heavily focus inward on ourselves selfishly. But whether or not we want to believe it, as Christians who are saved by grace, we are not defined by our sins and our failures and our shortcomings because we are defined by Jesus Christ who lives in us. You might know this. This might not be the first time you've heard this. This probably won't be the last time you'll hear this, but it's a needed reminder for myself especially. When we repent from our sin, meaning when we turn from our sin, and ask forgiveness, for forgiveness from the Lord. God does not 
take that repentance like a job application and store it away in his heavenly file cabinet to be pulled out again whenever we sin and repent again and God takes it out looking upon the drawers upon drawers of our shortcomings and say, hey, look at this. What happened here? You repented about this. Why, why are you sinning again? I thought you said you repented. I catch myself thinking about God that way sometimes. Maybe you do too. It's, it's, it's a skewed lie from the enemy that that's how repentance works. That's not how repentance works. When we repent from our sin, because of the blood of Christ, that sin is gone. We have no reason to live under the shame of it. Psalm 103, verse 10 to 13 says this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That's a great verse to memorize, a great passage to memorize. Christians, we should not live under fear and shame because the reality is, is we live under the grace and freedom and righteousness of Christ. Does that mean that we won't live under fear and shame or we can't live under the fear and the shame? No, of course not. We actually have the ability to choose, I think, to live under these things even though they are not true to us. We have been set free from them. There's this one analogy um, that my theology professor taught me at Bible school that I think really pictures as well. And it goes a little like this. Before, um, sorry, during life, we are all on a boat, okay? We're on this boat, and before we're saved, there is a captain heading up the boat. He's a very, very evil captain, and his name is sin or the flesh or the world, whatever you want to call it and he orders us around. Before we're saved, we have no ability to do anything else. We have to listen to him. There's no other option but to listen to this evil captain. But then, when we get saved, Jesus comes and he takes that captain and he locks him up in the brig, okay? In the bottom of the boat, behind bars. Now, there is nothing that that captain can physically do to make us listen to him, right? He's and Jesus promised he's gonna destroy him one day, but right now he's locked up in the brig, okay? There's nothing he can do. He can't, he can't touch us, but he still can have a very, very loud, booming voice. So now we have a choice as Christians if we're gonna to listen to him or if we're gonna live in the reality that we are under the freedom of Christ. The thing is, the more one listens to the voice from the brig, the more one obeys the enemy that has no power, the louder and louder his voice will seem. And the more one, one lives in the reality of our position with Christ, that voice will go fainter and fainter in the distance. I think Mephibosheth had a choice too. Mephibosheth could choose to, to wallow in sorrow as he made his way to the table every day, kind of hiding his face from everybody. 
or he could joyfully appear in the presence of the king, accepting the full grace and kindness of David that he did not earn in his undeserving manner, knowing that the king has overlooked those things because of Jonathan. This is the beautiful gospel picture in this story. David treated Mephibosheth the way that God treats us as Christians. Although Mephibosheth literally had nothing, he had less than nothing to bring to the table. David welcomed him in. Because of Mephibosheth's father, he was sent a request to live amongst the king for the rest of his life. And all he had to do was say, okay. We're in the same position. Romans 6.23, real quick. Talks to us about how the payment for sin, any sin is death. We all sin. We all deserve death. Okay? Any one sin, the result of that is eternal separation from Christ. That is the case for every single person that's ever existed. And because of Jesus, even though that's the case for us, we are sent a request to live amongst the king for the rest of eternity. See the similarities here? See the parallels? Okay, we're wrapping up here. But I want to set a scene for you guys. Okay, so can you humor me for a second and try and picture this in your mind? Okay, try and think of it like a movie, like cameras going around and stuff and panning to different characters. Imagine the king's dinner table, King David, years after this passage. There's David sitting at the head of the table, of course, in all his majesty and glory. And then you turn and then there's Solomon, David's son, who's, who's coming out from his study, probably setting aside his books, strapping young man coming to sit at the table. The other side of the room, coming down from one of the towers, spiral staircase and everything, there's David's daughter in her beautiful long hair, dressed in the most beautiful clothing, adorned with the most precious jewels. She comes to sit down at the table too to eat. At the, at, at the other end of the table, there's David's mighty men, possibly some of the most impressive people to ever have existed. The perfect soldiers, they're all bronze and muscular and ready to chow down on, this, on the dinner. And then David says, wait a minute. And everyone stops and pauses and looks over. It's down the hall. You hear the clumping or clotting or whatever it was that Mephibosheth did to travel all the way down to the table. And he's, when minutes pass, and he gets to the table and he hoists himself up onto his own designated chair with all humility, probably with a big old smile on his face. And he joins the men and women of honor, seated as a child of the king. In light of this blue water, may we be people who joyfully and humbly approach the presence of God in our undeserving manner, under the grace and freedom and righteousness that we have received from Christ. 